0: Maverick Show. More
1: good, good, good afternoon. It's just gone one o'clock on a Tuesday. That means it's time for the Daily Maverick Show on CliffCentral.com. I'm joined in studio by Simon Allison, our Chief Africa, um, coverer, reporter, correspondent, um, Maverick. Uh, welcome back, Simon. It's been a while since we've had you in studio.
0: Yeah, it has. Um, it's been an eventful couple of weeks, but I'm alive. Made so it back good. from Thailand. Thailand, a little bit of dengue fever, which was exciting. Oh, wow. Um.
1: Okay, well, as long as it's not, uh, yeah, a, a little bit of overshare there, but thanks, Simon. Uh, yeah, happy to have you back anyway. I think mean, just make sure you sit in the corner there and don't breathe this way, don't cough this way, Duncan, and I might just, uh, might just call the Ebola police on you. Um so we'll be covering a couple of uh, issues from the First Thing newsletter, which you can also get at com under the Daily Dose banner. Uh, we'll have Greg Nicholson joining us in the studio a little bit later to tell us about um, some of the um, efforts and the plights of the TAC that he's been covering. And we'll have Rebecca Davis on the line uh, to us from Cape Town uh, attending a press conference about mortality rates and the causes of uh, death in South Africa and uh, probably some interesting stats to come out of that, I suspect. But uh, we'll kick off with a with an interesting um, snippet from this morning's first thing newsletter, which showed that experts at um, in Oxford, uh, in England, uh, have noticed that after some studies that they've done, that the HIV virus is becoming less destructive, mm-hmm. which is quite. Interesting and surprising, usually you expect viruses to mutate and evolve and become more destructive, like we've seen with the TB virus becoming drug resistant and becoming a very big problem in South Africa. It's quite strange that it's, uh, it seems to be going the other way. So. It is, it's
0: almost counter-evolutionary at first, um, but then I guess the, the argument is that actually by becoming less dangerous it's less of a target um in a strange sort of the reverse psychology right some of the most effective uh, evolutionary animals are are the domesticated ones you know cats and dogs They're, they they mm. uh they've done really well by basically dropping their defenses against humans at least Right. Um, and I wonder if there's something, almost something similar here that, that, that the HIV, if it continued to be as virulent as it was, it was definitely going to be taken out at some stage or another. So maybe in a weird kind of way, it's, um, you know, the, 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 less, the less effective strains are the ones that are surviving because, um, they're not quite as dangerous. Well, you could almost apply that
1: to, um, what's been happening with the TAC, obviously, as a, as as a body, now, and this is a little bit of mental gymnastics, but you know, in our minds, you know, RVs were being dished out. You know, uh, people are living longer uh, and living almost normal lives. um, You know, with ARVs and with the virus, that that sort of red alert had you know been mm. clocked back down to to amber, and uh, and you know, all of a sudden we didn't need the TAC anymore, which is obviously crap. But it's kind of like there was the mentality, mm. so. Um, strange that, yeah, you mentioned it as an evolutionary tactic. Um, a couple of facts, given that it's World AIDS, was World AIDS Day yesterday, yesterday. Uh, and keeping with the theme. Um, do you know how many people are infected with HIV AIDS in South Africa, an estimate? I do not. Uh, that number is the single most for any country in the world, uh, or, um, as a percentage of the population, mm-hmm. uh, is 6.4 million people are estimated. To be living with sort of HIV. people. So
0: what? That's more than ten percent.
1: Yeah, it, it, it's it's nearing on fifteen percent. Yeah, between twelve and fifteen percent. It's incredible is because
0: it really has uh, HIV and AIDS has declined in in significance in terms of of the national sort of dialogue. Mm-hmm. We don't have huge debates about HIV and AIDS anymore, do we? Well, I mean, we it, that was obviously spurred on by AIDS denialism
1: and uh, Tabo and Becky, mm-hmm. for example, and and Garlic and uh, you know being being muted as a as a treatment for it and obviously you know uh, you know hundreds of thousands of people lost their lives because of the government's refusal to um to engage in the ARV program um and it yeah it just seems to be now that that i mean that that scary part was over ARVs became part of the government policy that it's kind of sort of you know um taken a a, a, a uh, um a lesser uh, a lesser point of view from from the scandals and the, the the murder issues that South Africa faces,
0: and that is, it's got to be a, a credit, and he he needs a few credits um, to poor old Jacob Zuma. Mm-hmm. Um, that is something that he turned around and, and he made quite drastic changes in as soon as he came into into power. Um, and, and surely that's a good thing. We, we mustn't forget that when we criticize him for everything else he does.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, and it's great. And we should give him that credit. But at the end of the day, he was just doing something that was logical and was his job, right? <laughs> at so let's not go too far.
0: And and, and then you, you do ask yourself, what would his stance have been if Tabo Mbeki was the logical one? Would, would he have been the, the beetroot supporter, you know? Um, how much of it was just purely doing the opposite of what Thabo and Becky did? Well, and and if your benchmark
1: is uh, an idiot who cost half a million people their lives and should basically be hung by his testicles in you know town square, if that's the benchmark that we're using, you know, let, you know, let's not go too far. <laughs> <laughs> um, some of the other some of the other um, uh, facts around HIV and AIDS uh, in, with regards to South African in, infections um, is it less than a third? of those 6.4 million people who are estimated to be living with hiv are actually getting treatment. Um less than a third. Less than a third, which means that there's a significant number like something like 4 million people um who are out there with who aren't getting treatment. And this obviously comes back to the relevance of a an organization like the TAC and the role that they still need to play. In South Africa, when you consider that something like ten percent of the population, just under ten percent of the population, is living with HIV and isn't getting any treatment, um, and then yes, that that uh, that number then transpires into a massive proportion. Uh, something like forty-two percent of um, of all deaths in South Africa in twenty ten were due to HIV/AIDS. So. 280,000 people were estimated to have died from HIV AIDS related uh, causes in 2010. So this
0: is interesting. I was just listening to uh, Stephen Hurtis in the midday report as I was driving into the studio, and he had uh, Pali Lehotla, the mm-hmm. South African st- st- statistician general, on the line talking about uh, the death figures for South mm-hmm. Africa. Um, and interestingly, if officially, I think um, there's only something like 27,000 people died from from HIV AIDS in the last year. Um, well, according you, according to the official stats. According st- to the official stats. Mm-hmm. And, of course, there's this big uh, discrepancy between mm-hmm. what doctors actually put on their mm-hmm. death certificates and, and what, you know, the real cause of disease is. And, and I mean, how do you tell these things? So someone mm-hmm. ultimately doesn't die of HIV. They die of, say, tuber- tuberculosis. Mm-hmm. Um,
1: and that's not what gets recorded as the official cause of death. Yeah, causing the the discrepancy between the estimates mm-hmm. and and the actual numbers. Um, we've just been joined by Greg Nicholson. Thank you for making it into the studio, Greg. Uh, yeah, we uh, we've we, we've just run through a whole bunch of of AIDS, HIV, AIDS stats and facts. Um, yeah, we straight into the death, straight into the death and destruction. Not even, not even the holiday the, season. Yeah, not even the quirky random fact anymore. Just straight in with the death. But uh, given uh, it was World AIDS Day yesterday, we thought we'd uh, we'd look up some of these stats just to just to. You know, bring home the impact. You know, it's almost been out of sight, out of mind for a while, and um, which obviously leads into a lot of the troubles that the TAC is finding, Mm -hmm. in that people think that now that the ARV program is being rolled out by government, it's no longer an issue, they no longer have a role to play. But looking at these states' stats, 6.4 million people estimated to be living with HIV in South Africa. Less than a third are getting treatment, and still something like 280,000 people per year are dying from HIV-AIDS-related issues. Um, you've been following the TAC's plight. How's it going with their fundraising efforts? Um, are they going to see see it through into the next year?
2: So far, it hasn't gone so successfully. They aimed to raise 10 million rand uh, during the month of November, but they only raised, I think it was almost 2 million, and that was with a really, really big international campaign pushing for all these things to raise a lot of money and drawing in people like um, Archbishop Desmond Tutu, Cross mm. Michel the daily, the daily Maverick. The Daily Maverick. We definitely did support them quite a bit. And and it's actually quite scary because even with this huge campaign, if they can't even raise, they didn't even manage to raise a fifth of their targeted mm. um, um, funds. It's looking quite worrying. At the moment, they said their latest announcement announcement yesterday was that they are close to sealing a $1 million deal, which would be Mm -hmm. 10 million, you know, about 10 million rand, which would really, really help them.
1: So this is basically just enough to get them through into next year, which will give them more time to fundraise for the balance of the 35 million rand budget that they need on an annual basis.
2: That's right. But it could be quite scary because what they'll end up doing is if they don't get that, um, that, that full operational budget, they'll actually cut down their programs. So, Mm. It looks like now they've got enough money, for example, to run one key program, which would be the sort of Eastern Cape health health issue, just to try and to try and improve just general services in the Eastern Cape, largely at clinic and hospital level.
1: Is that because Eastern Cape is hardest hit by, um, you know, sort of poor management in the province?
2: One of them, definitely. With Eastern Cape, Free State, Gauteng, um, all have huge problems, but they've been working quite hard in the Eastern Cape, and with the previous MEC that was there, there was almost no engagement and no improvement. Only hospitals and clinics really, really have deteriorated.
1: And, and that key program, would that still focus on uh, HIV AIDS or would it include the TB efforts that they've now sort of branched into?
2: Well, well, that's one of the things now. With the with the current push um, to try and completely stop or, or significantly reduce HIV infections and increase um, treatment, Get more people on treatment and get more people taking their treatment consistently. You can't just look at HIV/AIDS issues. You have to look at it, it it ties into all other sort of things. So obviously it ties into TB. But then even such things just as basic services at clinics. Um, trying to improve, um, staff care, um, cut down waiting times, uh, make sure there are no drug stockouts. These things are really, really crucial in terms of addressing HIV/AIDS. Because for example, if already we face stigma and, Things like that, so you don't want to get tested, or mm-hmm. or you're worried about getting treated, mm-hmm. and things mm-hmm. like that. So, but then if you have to take a day off work and go to the clinic, um, and then wait there for eight or nine hours, mm-hmm. and then you still don't get your medication because mm-hmm. there's a stock out, mm-hmm. it's it really really puts yeah. people off either getting going to seek treatment or testing and continuing with their ARVs. And then we have mm-hmm. a really really big problem right now in South Africa in that I think it's something like around about. I can't remember the exact figures, but it's under both, around about 40 and 30% in terms of people taking, taking their, getting on ARVs and then within three years. They're, they're not in, consistent in, taking, in, taking their medication in, anymore. And, and that sort of really does, um, inhibit our fight against HIV AIDS.
1: Which is from a combination of those factors, That's of right. the, the, you know, the, the, the time to, t- to the efforts required because it's just so hard that the, that the program hasn't made it easy for people to, to maintain and to stay on the program. That's
2: right. So we have this huge, huge, um, ARV program where about 2.5 million, around, they say mm-hmm. around 2.5 mm-hmm. million people are on treatment. But keeping them on treatment, and, and obviously with those figures you suggested, we have to increase the number of mm. people on treatment still, it requires a functional health system. And, yeah. and that is a much bigger challenge than just rolling out ARVs. Now what we have to do is get our actual clinics and hospitals running effectively, and that's a much, much harder challenge. It, I mean, it, it comes back to
1: that the the TAC does have a massive role still to play. We are so far away from what the optimal situation is, and you know it's sad that you know in, in a in a country that has probably the biggest problem as a percentage of the population, that a I, you know our government hasn't put more resources, more effort behind rolling out an effective program, and b. That we can't support the one organisation that has made mm. sure that the the poor efforts we've seen to date, the poor results we've seen to date, or the only ones we've seen to date,
2: they're pretty much responsible that we've those are, you know we've gotten to that at least mm. that stage. They are. I think on, on the government issue, we have to give the government credit, particularly under Zuma and Aaron Motsoaledi, the health minister, mm. for rolling out this ARV program and look at how far we've come from the dark days of Mbeki denialism because mm. we have they have put significant resources in, and the government spends a whole lot of money. Trying to, trying to prevent and treat um, HIV/AIDS, but now the problem is it, it's, often, it's often more similar to a lot of other government problems we have. So something like the the rollout of housing, it relates to the councillors we have, it relates mm. to the MECs, and it relates to the premiers largely. And so now trying to get those systems to work mm. is is much more difficult. And what the government's done is so they've got this, they've got a a positive and a well-regarded program to address HIV/AIDS and TB. But and it, it could still have improvements. But in terms of actually making it work and not just dumping all this money and this huge mm. program, that's that's the real challenge. And we have, I think, dropped the ball in the last few years. You know, once every, everyone praised Monsoletti when when and Zuma as well um, for what they've done for HIV/AIDS, and then sort of said, "Oh, fantastic, thumbs up." But then no one really looked at okay well, how are we actually going to make mm-hmm. this system work in the next few years? How, mm-hmm. how Implementation. Is, that's right. Which how is someone is usually in the problem with most uh, that's most right. Programs. That's right. And we have corrupt or either corrupt mm-hmm. um, officials still in like we're doing a lot of mm-hmm. a lot of government um, structures mm-hmm. as well as just people who can't manage mm-hmm. what well, what they're doing. And it's extremely worrying that we're just neglecting the TAC now because you're because you're right in that they have they have effectively caused the key improvements in this system. Mm. It wasn't the government who led it. It was them who put the pressure or led the sort of coalition of different bodies to put the pressure on the government to improve their services. And now for us to just, or for everybody to really just sort of put their hands up and say we don't need to support these activists anymore is extremely scary. Mm. It's it's, it's extremely scary because the TAC, the the key function that it serves is mobilizing people on the ground and giving patients voices. How many branches do they operate currently under the existing budget? I think it's around 190, Mm -hmm. with about 8,000 volunteers and I think towards 20,000 members.
1: That's a, I mean, that's a, you know, the size of a government department, the efforts of a government department.
2: We're we're talking about the biggest activist organization, I think, in the country. You know, 35 million rand
1: annual budget sounds like a lot of money, right? But when you think that, when you think that they're doing, you know, a, a major piece of work that, you know, a government budget would probably, you know, Cost a billion rand, cost the taxpayer a billion rand, you know, plus in order to to get the same, the, you know, the, the same results. It, it just it's a drop in the
2: ocean. Yeah, it's a it's a, you know, an Kandla like chicken run or something. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, no, it's it's not much, but I think it's been quite disappointing in terms of the international, mm. both international and local mm. response. Internationally, mm. we've seen donors deciding to shift their response um, to HIV/AIDS out out of South Africa mm. because they think mm. now South Africa is international donors have largely helped south africa mm. improve its systems
1: we've moved out of that sort of developing nation the, the, sort of status the, the crisis phase yeah. you know
2: yeah. into into much more of a try, trying to get the little things mm. right phase but it, it feels and looks like we've been neglected, you know. Mm. And obviously, we can't blame. Always blame international. Um, well, it's the, just,
1: I mean, you know, the, the pot just isn't. It's not a never-ending pot of money. That's right. right? It's a pot of aid money, right? That's it's right. And,
2: and then we have to look at internally in South Africa. We do have people who can donate that much money, mm. either either through you know middle and lower income. People mm-hmm. in terms of mm-hmm. just um, crowdfunding type mm-hmm. donations. Well,
1: people or people like Patrice Mansepi who dom- donated a million dollars to Ebola
0: research. That's right. Greg, the, g- 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 how much money does the EFF have? Could they ostensibly. Who knows? <laughs> there's a lot of berets out there. <laughs> I mean, I'm wondering if for a political party this could be I mean, a
2: genius thing to put a bit mm-hmm. of money back. The tack have TAC been adamant that they're not going to take any money that, um, that comes with strings attached. So they've said they're not going to take any government money unless it's clearly stated that there are no conditions. Mm-hmm. And even then, I don't think they would mm-hmm. take. Government money because there might be um, might be suggested sort of yeah. biases and they I think their image might look like it's um, mm. be a, their, their image and stances might be diluted so they so they're really pushing private and foreign donors um, but we're not sure how that's going to go and we haven't seen. We have, uh, as far as I can tell, there haven't been any um, large donations from either private South Africa or or wealthy individuals. We've got um,
1: Rebecca lined up to to join us in a couple of moments. Um, but Simon, I wanted to ask you this: so an issue like this is a breeding ground for fake drugs to basically enter. You know, people to start peddling something like fake. Uh, B- easy nutritional supplements. No, no, no. no. It's so, a fake ARVs. And, and this yeah. is, a, you know, we often see this stories coming out of the, out of the continent where there are, you know, um, cartels pushing, you know, fake drugs onto, uh, onto poor unsuspecting Africans. I don't know if this was a story that maybe you had covered in the past or not, but it's something that, that stuck out. And you can just see this as a fertile ground for, you know, desperate people to be taken advantage of.
0: Well, you know, it, it depends a lot on the, on the specific, um, context of the drug itself. And with ARVs, I think now, um, we get our ARVs from India. Um, and they, they, they come, uh, they're basically generics. Mm-hmm. Um, and the thing is, you're going to struggle to make fake drugs cheaper than the real drugs are made. Yeah. So I don't think it's, it's so much a problem when it comes to mm-hmm. the likes of ARVs. Um, and if you do want to get ARVs, I think that you, you, you know, you, yeah, you're not going to find fake ones cheaper than the, than the real ones if you can get get hold of them.
1: Yeah, if you can get hold of yeah. them under the under the normal channels or the proper channels, mm-hmm. I think that was the that was the point. Um, okay, we've got uh, still a couple of moments to go, Simon. Some uh, elections happening in uh, in our nearest one of our nearest neighbours. Bloody
0: elections! This has been a, a, a lot of elections this year in the SADC region. There was Malawi, Mozambique, Botswana, South Africa, of course, and now uh, we've got Namibia. And out of those five elections, uh, four of them. Returned the ruling party. Um, four of them; th- those countries have only ever known the ruling party in power. It's, it's quite, quite a, quite a strange twist on democracy that Southern Africa has got going on at the moment. this idea that. Um, if you freed the country from power, then you sort of get to sit in, the, in power mm-hmm. for uh, quite a long time. Now, what's happened in Namibia is... Um, and enjoy the fruits. And enjoy oh, the, the fruits, fruits. exactly. Yeah. What's happened in Namibia is that the ruling party, Swapo, um, they have... <laughs> their, their results are better than ever, actually. This right. is the, the best ever showing they 've had in an election um, and they were they were already sitting on a two thirds majority mm-hmm. in parliament. Um, the president the presidential candidate, a new guy called uh, Hage Gengob, um, he was the prime minister, and now he will be president. He won nearly eighty seven percent of the vote. Well, wow. I wow. mean, that's that's dominance, right there.
1: How, how, now, how does that um, compare against the actual performance of a country? You know, oh, in the, since is, the last. This since is since the the interesting.
0: Things so the people I tend to talk to are the people like the pe- think tankers, the academics, mm-hmm. the researchers, the journalists, mm-hmm. um, the politicians, the cynics, um, <laughs> and you know that class of people no matter what country they're in, they're all saying, you know, within Southern Africa, Botswana, Mozambique, Mm -hmm. South Africa, uh, Namibia, they're all saying the same thing. They're they're saying, you know, from from where they're sitting in their positions of, you know, these are elites. um, These are well-educated elites. And they look around and they're like, well, I I can't understand why are the people constantly voting um, these parties back into Mm -hmm. power? They're not delivering. They are not... um, sort of, um, taking advantage of the resources of the country to, to actually p- provide decent services like healthcare and education and welfare. Um, it's, it's all being lost in corruption and mismanagement. And, and yet they, they keep coming back. Um, so I think it's actually as a region, it's something we have to think long and hard about because it's, it's very patronizing to sit here in, in the ivory tower and say, well, well, the people got it wrong. Um, and a lot of the, uh, you know, there, there was a lot of reaction after the South African election that said, yeah. well, you know, what are these stupid people doing, voting back the ANC? Well, it's not as simple as that. Mm-hmm. Um, people are not stupid. People generally vote in their own best interests. So what they think, clearly what people f- are thinking is that keeping these ruling parties in power is in their own best interest. And you know what? It's th- They're not necessarily wrong. Mm-hmm. You look around at places that have a lot of political change. Um, most recently, say, Burkina Faso mm-hmm. um Political change doesn't necessarily create these amazing social welfare democratic conditions that we think it's going to. Um, so
1: it's a case of the devil you know rather than the devil you I don't. I think
0: so. I think that ultimately and is probably
1: it. combined also with um, um, a case of you know priorities for you know the masses are very different to the priorities of the of the well off to do elites sitting mm. behind uh, you know and often cynical. Combined, also probably with a little bit of the glow of liberation, lasts for a long time. Mm, it does. Um, you know, they, You know, you don't just erode that overnight. That takes. That takes mm. a long time. I mean, you know, you mentioned in your article today that um, you know that there are almost daily cases of corruption and scandals that seem to be dominating the media there, which obviously, I mean, you know, brings parallels to what's going on in South Africa, to what's happening in Namibia. Although there seems to be a slight. Uh, reversal of the support for the for the ruling party in this country.
0: Just, I mean, just a little bit. We're still talking. How much did the ANC get? Sixty percent. Sixty two. Sixty two. Yeah. I mean, these are huge numbers. Yeah. Um, I don't know. It's something we, we we really need to look at and and think about. And you know, maybe it's the right thing. Southern Africa is an uh, extraordinarily stable part of Africa. Mm-hmm. Has been for the last few decades. Um, it is growing economically. Um, things are getting better mm. for the people in this region. Maybe we just need to you know as of the uh, the sort of educated literati intelligentsia, we just need to calm down and just accept that <laughs> yeah. things don 't happen Keep that calm and, and drink wine yeah. Um, yeah and also i mean the the
1: base the standard of living that the masses have have come off you know I mean mm. their lives have improved significantly, so mm. it 's not like uh, you know it 's not like they have the the, the complaints and, and grievances that, uh, those elites, mm. um, have. But what does this mean for Namibia? 80 odd percent majority. Um, what are your fears, you know, that they can do with, with that majority?
0: Well, well, this is interesting. So in, I think it was June or, well, it was, July, it was late July or early August. Um, the ruling party, Swapo, rammed through 42 constitutional amendments. <laughs> Now, some of these were just, you know, changing wording and, and just, just tightening up the constitution, but some were fundamentally altering uh, the, the sort of makeup of the state. Um, they introduced this position of a vice president, which did not, did not exist before. Um, they also introduced, uh, something like 18 new members of parliament, um, a bunch of whom would be, um, appointed by the party instead of sort of elected wow. from the lists mm-hmm. um so sort of almost like a discretionary mm-hmm. um fund of mp seats that they could dole out to supporters now both of those were clearly designed especially that the vice presidency was designed to, to to bring more power into the executive branch it was designed to give Swapo a little bit more leeway so they could they could give the president to to say one um tribal representative, um, and give the vice president to another tribal representative, or, you know, they gave them a way to deal with, with some of the divisions in Namibian politics. Clearly, this was planning for, for the long-term swapo, um, rule. Now, what, at, at the time, this was very controversial. People were saying, we can't just, you know, you can't just ram through these constitutional amendments designed to help you keep power better, um, within your own party. Um, and, Yet the electorate said, that's okay. We don't mind. We're very happy with this. Uh, so Just keep on doing what you're doing. The fear is right. that this is going to embolden um, the ruling party to take even more liberties to really put their stamp on the country, um, to, to to basically diminish those divisions between the state and the party itself. Two things that I'd like to ask
2: is, Number 1, are, in these countries, do we see strong uh, organized and viable opposition parties? And and secondly, um, can how trustworthy are these elections? Um, are they free, fair and credible? Since the Campepe report on the Zimbabwean <laughs> election, you know,
0: 12 years ago, it seems hard to trust anything It now. is it is hard to trust. I think the, the the Namibian elections fine. No no one's raising any complaints. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as their opposition parties, no, that's a big problem. They, they do not have any kind of credible or legitimate opposition. The, the most serious opposition... Now, maybe
1: there's an opportunity for the EFF expansion into... There is. EFF there is. F-men there's a the Namibian EFF. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The um, there
0: is. And they, they heckled the, the SADC observer mission as they delivered their results. Sounds quite like EFF. <laughs> it <laughs> does, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I think there are I'm only... I'm to see a pattern. There and are image, only yeah. four EF ni- <laughs> EFF members or something ridiculous. <laughs> so, um, they're a complete non, uh, non-entity, but they do make for some good headlines. As as they always do, um, so no, that, that's a problem that there isn't really um, a strong opposition. It, it was an interesting case. Um, this guy called McHenry Venani, and and he um, he's an opposition leader from the the Democratic Turnhalle Alliance. Now he came second in the in the presidential vote. He didn't even manage to to win five percent, um, and he still came second. But he, you know, he, he was interesting because he would go and like spend five nights in a, in a shanty town in a shack and commute to work with the people. And then he'd go to a sort of tribal reserve area and spend a few days there. Um, and he'd go to his rallies on donkey carts and stuff like that. And, <laughs> and he caused quite a stir. There, there was a lot of, he got a lot of attention and, uh, but but you know ultimately, um, even his relatively sophisticated campaign made absolutely no dent whatsoever in the final numbers. Um, we're going to have to leave it there for for a moment, Simon. We've got uh, Rebecca
1: Davis on the line from Cape Town. Rebecca, are you with us?
3: Hello. How are you? Uh, we we're,
1: we're we're good. Uh, I believe you've just come from a press conference about something quite morbid.
3: I have literally morbid, morbidity, South African mortality rates, causes of death, what we're dying of. And the answer is not crime, unbelievably enough. The answer is basically preventable disease. It really is quite something, though, when you look at these figures and you realize to what degree crime dominates our national narrative, when really we should be up in arms about the state of our health system. I mean just the fact that so many infants still die of malnutrition. I mean, it's like, what is this? Ethiopia in the mm-hmm. 80s, you know what I mean? The fact that, you know, diabetes, it's, oh, something like 50 people per day die of diabetes in Philadelphia. I mean, that doesn't have to happen, you know? So it's really something. The the the, the number of, the percentage of people who die in from either crime or road accidents is actually only 10%. I know that's that's probably far higher than the rest of the world, but sometimes it doesn't feel like that at all. 90% of the other deaths mm-hmm. are due to likely preventable illnesses. I mean, that to me is actually quite a striking
1: figure. Rebecca, we had a um, a, a question earlier where um, a study done in 2010 showed that you know uh, 280,000 people had died of HIV-AIDS-related uh, uh, causes in, in 2010 but more recently, we've, we've seen that the number actually officially attributed to that, uh, co- coming out of statistics, um, uh, is, is a much smaller number, only 27,000 or, you know, just 10% of the, the number that's actually estimated. What did those numbers come through in the, in the conference today?
3: As of today, the stats that have said that HIV, HIV related causes, or HIV disease, has actually risen in terms of cause of death. So it used to be the seventh leading cause of death around about um, 2011. In 2012, it was the sixth leading cause of death. And as of last year, which is the most recent start, 2013, it's not third. But they said it's not necessarily cause for um, assuming that that, uh, the, you know, that, that, there's the a great prevalence. Just more the doctors are now feeling more comfortable about, about recording it as a cause of death. So it used to be the case that doctors were really nervous about, in some areas, about, uh, recording HIV as a cause of death because they were worried that it would affect families' insurance, because families asked them not to do it out of stigma and so forth. And it seems that because of training and because of various changes to life insurance regulations, people are getting better at it. So it's not necessarily that the number of deaths due to HIV are increasing, but it is the case that it's now risen on the list of leading causes of death.
1: Did they put any absolute numbers to those uh, percentages or those
3: uh, rankings? So there's 3,458,933 deaths were recorded in South Africa in 2013, which is 8.6 deaths per 1,000 people. That's altogether, That is both natural and unnatural causes. And of those, the highest death rate per 1,000 people occurred in the free state and the lowest in Gauteng and in the Western Cape. Most people die in hospitals, 44%, 23% at home, and the rest you have to see in slightly less comfortable environments.
1: So does this mean you'll be aiming your journalistic laser at the Department of Health going forward?
3: I, mean, I think one of the conclusions I walked away with is that perhaps we, we we do tend to spend too much time on crime and too little on health, and I think there's probably some not terribly positive reasons for that, that you know, the fear of crime, the fear of of, of road accidents, for instance, that they cut across all threads of society rather than, for instance, infant mortality being largely restricted to something that poor people die from. So, I mean, I think there are, you know, social reasons why crime tends to get focused on more, and then they're not good reasons. We should be focusing more on health. I know that the headline, yet another person dies of AIDS today, is not as gripping, perhaps, as yet another person murdered in a but But, um, you know, it's more indicative of what's actually happening out there.
1: Um, it's quite interesting, you mentioned that 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 point of uh, what dominates the media coverage is it, it's someone else's problem Um it's someone else it's it's the other people it's the other ninety nine percent that doesn't affect me um th- Should we as the media be taking a hard look at ourselves uh, in that respect, and what can we do to change that
3: look it's really hard because people tend to skip over stories about health if they don't directly affect them you know we all tend to suffer rising from this kind of social justice fatigue so much bad news so many things that seem intractable problems you face with this like chaotic health system it's a big faceless problems and what to do with it I think journalists should be focusing more on telling very human stories putting faces to the problems in the hope of sort of galvanizing people but I think the sad reality too is that a lot of people don't care about issues until they directly affect them it's just simple as until your mother died of cancer you know you've never really given cancer maybe, maybe we, we need
0: Oscar to, to, to contract TB <laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs> he's in prison now so we can, see,
0: we can see the government's TB
2: prison program at work Rebecca it's Greg here <laughs> I just want to ask did, did the chief statistician have any harsh words for the government on or society on these preventable um, diseases being the largest causes of the deaths or did he just sort of present the numbers up front and let you make your own interpretation
3: so, I get the feeling that the statistician general is not prone to sort of political grandstanding in the same way that we see from these other sort of peri political um, figures like the Auditor General and so forth. So there wasn't really any any um, condemnation. In fact, the tone of the, the the briefing I was discussing with a fellow journalist afterwards was sort of oddly um, upbeat. <laughs> <After> there were <laughs> moments of, of levity, which struck me as a bit odd considering the sort of dark subject matter and also some strange sort of philosophical statements. So the television General started off by defining death for us very handily because, of course, it is something that we all grapple with. <laughs> and he, he said, death is a permanent disappearance of all evidence of life after a live birth has occurred. <laughs> it's actually a very interesting definition because as someone tweeted to me for a start, it, it's... Um, Seems to jurisdictionally rule out abortion mm. as being, you know, mm. murder because that's not after or a even life death. Birth. Or death, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So um, I, I don't know where where the statistician general gets his his um, metaphysical readings from. But so interesting <laughs> stuff, nonetheless.
1: Um, Rebecca, we, we spent a bit of time talking about um, uh, the plight of the TAC uh, at the beginning of this radio show. Do you walk away from that press conference thinking? Uh, yes, the, you know, we still as a country need organizations like the TAC and other civil society movements, uh, to be going on and continuing the good work that they've done in the past.
3: I mean, most definitely, but you also have to think about the fact that, you know, HIV is realistically not the leading cause, cause of death in That TB, and admittedly TB and HIV obviously interact hugely. Is up there, things like diabetes as well. So, while I, of course, fully acknowledge the work done by the TAC and particularly historically, we've also got to look at the fact that, you know, there are a lot of other health issues out there other than AIDS, and that there are a lot of other civil society organizations trying to do their best they can with budgets far smaller than what the TAC is asking for. So, I mean, obviously, no, no, no disputing from me that the value that we owe to the TSC. But I think um, let's also be aware that there are other NGOs that are also desperately in need of funds and also doing very valuable work.
1: Um, before we let you go, uh, you wrote another piece about some justice being served for a change, it seems, in our courts. Uh, about the, um, Supreme Court of Appeal that handed out a sentence to J. Arthur Brown, he of the Fidentia notoriety. Um, what was your takeaway from, from that sentencing after that, what seemed like a ludicrous initial suspended sentence and fine?
3: I felt elated, frankly. I mean, I mean, you <laughs> we were probably good because it seemed, I mean, a lot of us obviously don't have a huge amount of detailed knowledge of the case, but it did seem like justice seemed to be done. Very, in a very sort of decisive way for once in South Africa. And also interesting to think of it in terms of cases like the Vistorious, the Vistorious appeal, which will probably be heard in some saying just to note just how drastically the Supreme Court of Appeal can change the outcome of a court case. You know what I mean? I mean, this is a man who originally walked away with 150,000 rand fine, was, it's no jail time whatsoever who has now been told to report to the nearest prison, you know, to spend the next, hopefully, a great part of the next 15 years in jail. So it is a reminder that the Supreme Court of Appeal has a great deal of power and, you know, will not hesitate to smack down a judgment when they find it incorrect. And in this particular case, the the original judge in the J. Arthur Byron case came in for particular criticism. They said he'd shown the judge, and from the West Cape High Court, had shown far too much leeway to the accused. So it'll be interesting to see how that... Kind of dynamic
0: might play out in these cases.
1: This is something that keeps cropping up every time there's a major financial financial case uh, of this nature, especially with fraud cases where curators are curators are never, never, never seem to be far from controversy in cases like this.
3: Indeed, (laughs) 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 I don't know a huge amount about curatorship, but the problem is that in this case. The curators who, who were placed in charge of Cadentia, J. Arthur Brown's firm, appear to have been not too far from controversy themselves. The financial services board itself has also been mired in controversy, with their CEO stepping down under suggestions of malfeasance as well. So it's been a very murky general insight into South Africa's commercial world. And for a lot of people, it's been symptomatic of the fact that, first of all, the commercial climate in South Africa often goes... Unnoticed, it goes unreported, and it goes unpunished. And that the National Prosecuting Authority's Corporate Commercial Crime Division is particularly, um, well, particularly poor at at bringing these cases to justice. So. I mean, if it's a sign that that things are moving in the right direction, that would be extremely helpful because these kind of scams happen all
1: the time. Yeah, Yeah. I I was uh, just thinking back to the um, Barry Tannenbaum case, um, a pyramid scheme, and um, and that also ended up with, with a case of, you know, the creator's, uh, Been pointed the finger at and, and it's just I mean When you look at the fees That these guys end up You know Pulling out of these schemes At the end of the day It seems like The only people who win uh, Are the curators At the at the end of the day So I'm not surprised that you so know, There's some lawyers Making a few bucks as well Yeah It's always You know When when these things happen It's always the lawyers That are The lawyers And the damn accountants And <laughs> you know The people Keep getting screwed over It seems Um No that's true And you
3: know In this case It was a particularly Poignant situation Actually because J. Arthur Brown and his cohorts, and possibly the curators, lawyers, and everyone else associated, stole money literally from the mouths of orphans mm-hmm. and widows. I mean, these are people who were dependent on the Mine Workers' Providence Fund, which paid out to the mm-hmm. families of injured mine workers. That is where the money was coming from. This isn't some, like, faceless, victimless crime where, you know, a big company got a bit skimmed off the top. This is this mm-hmm. money for school fees, for funerals, for retirement. It's really terribly, terribly sad.
1: And amounts that ran into the billions. Um, you know, so to think that the, the initial fine was hundred and fifty thousand round of the suspended sentence, you know, maybe that judge should be put on trial for handing something down like that down.
3: And it seems hugely unlikely that any of those people are really gonna recover their money. Hmm. Um, there was talk of a few a few million being paid out, but I've heard from people saying they still haven't seen any of that money. They don't know what, what's happening and
2: you know, I doubt that money's coming back to Cool. Just, just quickly, Rebecca. This, the change in judgment from the High Court to the SCA seems so huge. Did the Supreme Court of Appeal have any have any harsh words for the High Court judge? Because it seems it's it's such a huge difference. Of, of, sh- surely the Supreme Court of Appeal must have rebuked the High Court and sort of um, set a set a tone for how things should go forth.
3: Yeah, they did. They absolutely did. Because the minimum prescribed sentence for a start in cases of fraud exceeding 500,000 rand is 15 years in jail. And Judge Anton Sulte, in this case, thought there was a sufficient um, leeway to not impose that sentence. But he also took into account stuff like the fact that J. Arthur Brown had been scorned by his community and scorned by his church, which he seemed to think was a a punishment in itself, which I think a lot of us would, would say is crazy when you're stolen... Wow, been, you know at the wheel when a million a billion rand goes goes missing mm-hmm. they did, they said that, um, that Paul Hazen uh, had been you know, deserve, was deserving of censure, that he he got it wrong essentially, and um, one wonders I'm not sure what the answer to this is, but what happens in cases like this, what happens when a judge is declared by the Supreme Court to be deserving of censure, are there steps that go, get taken, are, are they su- subject to disciplinary review, I'm not sure what happens there. I don't know if you do
1: I wonder, no, idea. Yeah, I wonder if they're given a bye over next week's, uh, next week's game. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> they get to sit on the sidelines. Um, Rebecca, thanks so much for joining us. It's always a pleasure to have you on the show and, uh, we look forward to chatting to you again soon. Thanks guys.
3: Keep
1: well. Cheers. Yeah. Cheers. Um, Greg, you, uh, have, got, what, what's coming up for you? I believe you've got, uh, you've been assigned to the FF conference, um, coming up in a couple of weeks time. Yeah. Um, you looking forward to that? What are you
2: expecting? Uh, I'm expecting chairs coming at my head and bricks and pangas. <laughs> Who knows, actually? To be honest, I have no idea what to expect. Like, honestly, the, some of the regional conferences, such as in Northern Cape, I think it was Northern Cape, where, where we've seen actually blood, literally blood on the floor um, with, with delegates fighting, and they're, they're fighting for positions, and I think it's largely because... A lot of the people who have joined EFF are former ANC Youth League um, structures who were disbanded by mm-hmm. the ANC National Task Team for the Youth League, and mm-hmm. and lost their livelihoods or their future access to positions and mm-hmm. potentially further wealth that comes with those positions. <laughs> and so, so what are you implying? Yeah, I mean <laughs> the, the ambition of a corporate uh, of a political career. I mean, you know, and to serve the people really is what the, of course, the start of course. No, yes. I wouldn't imply anything. Yes. but so so there is extreme extreme. Um, Tension over who gets access mm-hmm. to a, a, a relatively smaller amount of positions, if you compare mm-hmm. it with with what you might mm-hmm. have got if you if you were rising mm-hmm. in the ANC. Mm-hmm. So we actually have seen blood on the floor at multiple um, ANC conferences so far. So I wouldn't be surprised if we do see some some actual fighting, mm-hmm. um, some real shit go down. So I'm going to be prepared for that. Just
1: <laughs> so I mean, we were talking about this, you know, just looking back to when we all went and and uh, and covered the ANC national conference in 2012 in in Mangung. and obviously the FF conference is going to be in Manguang now. This is going to be the first national conference. So um yeah, it's just weird to to kind of go have you know no idea what to expect. You know, it's their first one. You know, what's the organisation going to be like? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, at least with the ANC national conference, you've got. You know they've had they had quite a few conferences, um, you know before. Um, organization was you know I guess could always be better, um, but at least you know they've got the budgets and the and the experience of of, of previous ones. So not quite sure what to expect with um, with the EFF this time round.
2: I think I think that's the interesting thing as well going forward because the EFF really have made an impact on politics. Everyone knows it and can feel it. But the future of the EFF and whether it's going to be a viable and sustainable party that can build and potentially either challenge the ANC mm-hmm. or get enough votes to then potentially enter into some sort of coalitions mm-hmm. to, to govern certain areas will largely depend on their organizational stability. Mm-hmm. So if the EFF is able to have a smooth conference, elect leaders democratically um, mm-hmm. without too many grievances of of bias or vote rigging or… So um, that it
1: can roll out and grow
2: branches. That's and, right. And, and implement
1: uh, those structures, I
2: think. It's, that that's what will determine the EFF's future and we re, we really don't know about that so far because we've seen when Julius Malema led the ANC youth league he re, he led it with an iron fist mm-hmm. and the national task team um who have been looking into the youth league structures Basically, say that it was a fiefdom. Mm-hmm. You know, it was, there was, there was gatekeeping. Um, any anyone who who spoke out against the leaders were crushed mm-hmm. without without mercy. Mm-hmm. And I think if if there are those same tactics in the EFF, we'll see it split and dwindle again. It's never mm-hmm. going to grow, and I think we'll we'll see it turning into a cope. If they can actually maintain some sort of internal democracy and stability and unity. Um, Within, within competitions and, and contested elections, then we might see it grow. But that's what, that's what we're waiting to see. But it's going to be quite interesting because you have this set of leaders in the EFF, Julius Malema and those around him, who are so powerful and so strong and so publicly known. Will anyone challenge them? And, and if people do challenge mm. their leadership, how will they be treated?
1: Mm. It, it's almost as if they'll need – I mean, obviously, given his history and how – the youth league was run, as you mentioned, uh, it's almost like they need someone to come in with it on the ground stuff, you know, that the actual, you know, bricks and mortar, uh, efforts that are required to, to grow a political party beyond just, you know, Shouting in parliament and, and cause and grabbing headlines. And
2: that's going to be the thing because obviously this stuff happens, you know, behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. So I think it's going to be a chance for us to actually be able to judge and evaluate mm-hmm. how they've gone so far. We'll see how many branches they've set up, mm-hmm. how many members they have, and whether they can actually even run a conference because mm-hmm. running a conference is actually a huge task. Mm-hmm. So it'll be really, really interesting to see whether they do have, if, if the FF does have people in, you know, in the background who are working very hard to set up these structures because it's growing very fast and they must have, Strong organisational capacity, and and whether they can they can survive for the future. But I'm not sure if we can just touch quickly on another story. Yeah, that I'm not sure yeah. if it's come out today that isn't the most positive sign for the EFF. Uh, do you know a guy called Papiki uh, Babule,
3: no. who
2: um, he was an ANC Youth League member, yeah, and in the run up to the ANC's yeah, 2012 Mangwane yeah, conference. Yeah. Um, he was charged for assassinating another youth, mm, you know, mm, so an- another, ANC leader.
1: Convicted
0: murderer
2: he's are. now been convicted of murder. Mm, and mm. then a few days later was elected the leader of the EFF in the Northwest, mm. allowed to stand <laughs> a convicted murderer. <laughs> and the EFF is out here defending, defending themselves saying, no, he's going to appeal. So we mm-hmm. must let the court procedures mm-hmm. run its course. But I just, I don't which think, which again could be years. Like, yeah. It could be years. Mm. And, and I, I just don't think it's a good image mm. and a good tone mm. to set for the EFF. If it's trying to move away from the ANC, we have Julius Malema's charges still outstanding against him. Mm-hmm. We have now, now the leader in the Northwest, where they do have a strong base, um, is charged with murder. What does it say about the EFF mm-hmm. in comparison to the claims that they have against the ANC that Zuma won't pay back the money? Mm-hmm. <laughs> this guy's convicted of murder. <laughs> um, is there any possibility that we could
1: see any sort of. Maybe big name defections, you know, to the EFF are being announced at this, at this conference. I mean, mm. you know, have they caused enough of a ruckus that, you know, there might be you know, people who are unhappy with, um, you know, internal politics at, at uh, Lutuli House that they might, uh, you know, see this as an opportunity to move across onto something that's growing momentum, regardless of, you know, the lack of perceived st- structure.
2: It's always a possibility. Of course, we saw that with COPE quite a bit and certain ANC members have moved to DA in the, in the past few years. But I think what generally happens with defections is people move when they're sidelined, when their faction mm. doesn't win and they have no, no longer have mm. an access mm. to Dead positions, end. when they still have access. As to positions and their slate wins, mm. they they just toe the line, regardless mm. of if they 're happy with zuma 's corruption or, or other sort of alleged corruption or other other policies. Mm. Um, I think as well one of the things with EF now is people are quite cautious of moving to the EFF at least some of the old hands of the mm. ANC um, because of there's so much we don't know about them, and they are populists. Um, mm. They've got this sort of strong stance we have mm. to stand up in parliament and cause a ruckus. I think people are quite cautious for moving to such a party. Mm. And also we've seen, we've seen, we've seen quite a, we already saw quite a large number of defections from the Youth League and certain structure, structures of the ANC to the EFF. At the same time, people are also, I think some ANC members, um, uh, some, some will, of course, go over to the FAF. I don't know if we'll see any large ones, but some other ones are looking to see whether the NUMSA will start a workers' party. Mm-hmm. Um, that that could see a whole lot of defections, and that's what we're waiting for, really.
1: Okay, uh, we're about to wrap things up, um, Simon. Uh, anything you're working on this uh, this week that's of note, or are you just throwing a dart can, at, can I, can I at a map say, of Africa? Someone and- told
2: me yesterday, Simon had dengue fever. Yes, yes, I did. <laughs> okay, anyway, moving
1: on. <laughs> yeah. You missed that part of the show, where we wanted to put him into quarantine, Greg. <laughs> um, yeah, are you throwing a, a dart at the map of Africa and picking a problem? Um, that I am or? today,
0: but, but for the rest of the week, I'm looking into what the hell is going on in Zambia. Now, of course, they, the president mm-hmm. died and they got yeah. a new, this new white president mm-hmm. in the interim. And there's all kinds of shenanigans going on in the ruling party and mm-hmm. trying to figure Joking out for where and the and power lies there. So I'll probably look into that. Right.
1: Cool. Well, uh, that's about all we've got time for this week. Uh Thank you for listening. If you downloaded the podcast, thanks for downloading. Um You can catch Daily Maverick at dailymaverick.co.za. The First Thing newsletter also from Daily Maverick or the Daily Dose uh, from cliffcentral.com. Uh, we look forward to hosting you next week again at the same time live, 1 o'clock on a Tuesday, uh, available at cliffcentral.com or uh, the podcast from Daily Maverick, Cliff Central or iTunes.